Scott McNamara with What's New in Adapted Physical Education. I have a extra special episode. Uh, all of our episodes are special on here, but we have a really great episode today uh, where we're going to talk about uh, social justice, critical pedagogy, uh, diversity, all within maybe the world at large as well as within the field of a physical education and adapted physical education. Um, this is a topic that I have tried to discuss in, in previous times, but I probably have not done the best job of doing it as well. But uh, with that, I have Dr. Hodge and Dr. Clark, who are two experts in the area uh, of social justice within our fields. Um, and so I'm going to let them, though, briefly introduce themselves. So, uh, Dr. Hodge, can you tell us really briefly a little bit about um, your background and some of your interests? Uh, yes, thank you for having me on. Uh, I, my background is uh, uh, trained in adaptive physical education, and uh, my research interests primarily are around issues of diversity, inclusion, and disability. Wonderful. Uh, Langston, would you also like to introduce yourself just briefly a little bit about your background and uh, some of your research interests? Hello, everyone. Again, my name is Langston Clark. Um, I am a I am a scholar of physical education, teacher education, and my interest in adapted PE sparked um, through a class I took as an undergraduate student at North Carolina A State University, and was able to get my master's degree in adapted PE. And although I don't do I don't have a research or scholarly focus on adapted physical education, I do have a value for disability and diversity. Uh, my current research is on uh, social justice issues surrounding African-Americans in physical education, teacher education, um, and also situated, situating that within the context of historically black colleges and universities. And as I, I was looking at some of your, and, and both of the scholars that we have on today, I would say are uh, very accomplished scholars uh, in, in our field of physical education. And but uh, Langston, I saw a article that you posted on Twitter yesterday uh, that was that you uh, discussed being a uh, Dr. Hodge is one of your mentors. Did you study under Dr. Hodge as well? So yeah, um, it's 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 interesting. So that that article is called "Standing on the Shoulders of Little Giants," and basically, I'm talking about like people who are like my personal heroes in the field um, and the framework that she used is called other fathering. And so um, Dr. Hodge is like one of my, my academic parents, you know, those of us who have doctorates and master's degrees or even just undergraduate degrees, like we have academic parents. And so uh, at the master's level at Ohio state, Dr. Hodge was my advisor and was, you know, a catalyst for my, transition to the doctoral program at the University of Texas. Very cool. That's awesome. I, I saw that post and I thought that was a really awesome article to, to probably write uh, about the people that have helped support you. Uh, yeah. Um, it's an honor to write that article, by the way. 
I'm sh I'm sure. Uh, so with that, uh, we're going to talk a little bit uh, again about social justice, and we're going to relate it to physical education and adaptive physical education. Uh, Dr. Hodge is is uh, you know one of our quintessential scholars in APE and Langston's. Uh, Dr. Clark's working a lot more in the physical education realm, uh, as they kind of stated. So with this, and I'm excited to have both of you on here uh, as premier kind of scholars in this. You know, as I said, maybe a little bit before this conversation or recording, uh, this is something that, you know, is something that I definitely need to work on myself and something that I'm definitely not a, an expert in. And, you know, I reached out to both of you and I, I had mixed feelings, honestly, about reaching out to you at this moment because of the Black Lives Matters movement that's occurring right now in the world. And as both of you are, are black faculty, um, and I, I reached out to both of you, and I had mixed feelings because I didn't want to do it. I don't know, like, like at this moment, and kind of make it as a, whatever, like a gesture at this moment, um, or or pandering a little bit to my audience. Um, but at the same time, I did feel like, and it's something I hope that I can continue myself and in our field as a constant conversation. Um, but I did also see it as a watershed moment, at, potentially, that I really want to have um, two scholars in our field kind of discuss it in a more in-depth uh, fashion. Um, so I appreciate both of you coming on. Uh, so with that, uh, we're going to just start out with the very broad questions of like, what is this? So what is social justice and, and how does it fit into PE and APE? Uh, I'm happy to start uh, if, that's, if that's okay. Uh, and thinking about this po uh, this uh, uh, podcast uh, and knowing that there are multiple definitions of social justice and there is some inconsistencies in definitions. And in fact, an article by Harrison and, and Clark, uh, they point that out. Um, and, you know, what is social justice? So I decided, uh, at least in my own mind, social justice is advocacy agency and action directed toward correcting disparities and inequalities, inequities in all of Americans' institutions, including education, of course, uh, our field. But it also expands out to health, law, politics, and the list, the list goes on. Um, and these disparities and equities exist mostly between majority and minoritized populations, uh, including poor communities as well. Uh, and women historically have been marginalized as well. And of course, individuals with disabilities across various institutions have been marginalized historically as well. Uh, social justice advocacy and agency and action is intended to empower such marginalized groups for meaningful, sustainable change. So, um... Dr. Hodge gave a very good definition, and, and mine certainly would not have been that polished. So uh, I um, I agree with that, um, but it's also it, I, I think we we are at a point where in our scholarship that social justice needs to be troubled a little bit, and so. Um, in my dissertation and, and I, I probably in some of my forthcoming scholarship and I've, I've, I've maybe hinted at it in some of my more recent articles that have come out this year or will be coming out later this year that social justice in a lot of ways has become about it, it, 
it's become a it's it's emphasized whiteness and it's 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 interesting it's it's sort of um sort of ironic that i think a lot of times in teacher education whether that be in the classroom in the gymnasium or with adapted pe so much of what we're talking about teaching for social justice teacher education for social justice is the scholars scholars of color in particular training white folk to be socially just in some ways, it, it it ignores the the training of you know black teachers, Latinx teachers, indigenous teachers. Like the focus for me is beginning to shift in terms of my own identity towards you know what does it look like to prepare socially just um, Latinx black uh, physical educators and adaptive physical educators. And I say Latinx specifically because I work at a Hispanic serving institution. And so although I am, I am like really, really committed to focusing my, my energy efforts, activism, whatever you want to call it, into black communities, I certainly understand and value that I have a responsibility to teach um, and prepare the, the students who are in front of me. And so I have an appreciation for um, where I am and who, who I am preparing to go out into the field and be teachers as well. And I, and I think if uh, there are two things I would want to add to, to that. Um, if one is that you cannot truly understand social justice if you do not understand oppression. Because if there was not for, if there was no oppression, then there would not be a call for social justice. The second would be that I think the term social justice is too small. Uh, what I mean by that, uh, for those of us who do this type of work, we understand the importance of environmental justice and legal justice and criminal justice. And uh, so I've started in my writing to not in fact use the word social, but just to use the word justice because it crosses all areas of life. Um, and so uh, justice in all of the ways that we would like to see it happen uh, must recognize the presence of oppression and draw the attention to the manifestation of inequalities and define groups as either underprivileged, privileged, or overprivileged. And a part what justice is attempting to do is bring people in line with uh, being privileged not one or over the other, but all of us having privilege within a society. Thank you both. Uh, those are uh, very good uh, definitions and comprehensive of what social justice is. Uh, some, I have like a few follow-ups off of that. Uh, Dr. Clark, you, you mentioned briefly that the term whiteness, trying to, you know, that even when we teach social justice often in our classes, that it's still coming from a whiteness perspective. And um, I read some of your articles and you discussed that a little bit as well. Can you define kind of like what, what you mean when you say whiteness kind of is pervasive in these, these areas? What I mean is, is that I, I had, Dr. Hodge knows this and he, he has, he has experienced sort of like firsthand my, um, the, the tensions that I have experienced with social justice going from being very, very, un very, and I would say unfairly critical um, of my education, my teacher education at a historically black college, 
then like being at some point like very critical of my education at predominantly white institutions. Um, and I, I, I think that the issue is, is more broadly in terms of like talking about social justice and whiteness and diversity is that we, we are catering to, we, we are catering to, I want to say this, as a black scholar, as a black teacher educator, the framework, the frame is to educate white folk. It's, it's supposed to be about, it's supposed to be about the folks who don't have the privilege. But what happens is it becomes about the folks, it becomes about us teaching and serving the people who don't have the privilege. Mm. So, like I had, I have a mentor who told me, it's like, man, I've been here so long at this school. And you know, it's like my job is to bring these white folk along and help them to understand what we mean when we say social justice, what we mean when we talk about injustice. And for me, like I've made a decision that, like I don't want that to be my job, right? It's not, it's not my job and my work to, to teach white folk to be better or more sensitive to the plight of black folk and other folks of color or whatever the case may be. Like I've decided that my work is gonna go towards my work is going to be in the margins, and that's where I focus, like my theoretical frameworks. That's where I focus my my approach to teacher education, my approach to adaptive PE. That it is not so much about being in service to whiteness, so that white folks have a better understanding, but it is about empowering the people who are already in the margins. Like that's that's my focus, mm-hmm. um, and I, that's what I mean about um, that's what I mean about. Um, having this overemphasis on whiteness and even like thinking about like the way we talk about like the, um, you know, teacher education, I think it's like 78%. It's less than 80 now. It used to be 80, like 78% of teachers are, are, are white. And then the majority of those are white women. And so in some ways it makes sense that like our approach to teacher education, to adapted physical education, teacher education for social justice, would cater to the students that we have right in front of us who are most likely going to be white. I just, I just don't want that to be the role that I take. And I think that we have to pay attention to other folks out there who are interested in being teachers and not further marginalize them by ignoring uh, the types of teacher education that they need and understanding that teacher education for social justice for a majority white student population, a majority white female student population is very different than the teacher education or adaptive PE teacher education for social justice that you will experience in a place that is majority black or majority Latinx. So, um, just to like kind of jump on that and to also move our conversation, this is good stuff. Um, I had Justin Hagel on here a little while ago uh, and he talked about his uh, paper called The Inclusion Illusion. Uh, where he talks about where we're I, I, just to kind of relate that um, it to to a prior conversation we've had on this show is like a lot of times we're, we're we care when we talk about inclusion, quote unquote, that experience of inclusion. Uh, we care more about often what the um, the teachers think about inclusion versus the actual students with disabilities uh, feel. So sometimes the stakeholders that we that we might care about aren't the ones that 
uh, are often the ones that maybe aren't the, the ones that we're really trying to get to. So with this, let's talk a little bit about the inter so intersectionality uh, of, of race and disability a little bit um, and, and how this might impact one's PE experience. Uh, so, so where does disability fall under this, um, this social justice umbrella and how does it mix or how does it intersect with uh, race? So if I could uh, jump in uh, here, I would say uh, in leaving and starting where uh, Dr. Clark left off, I would say uh, you cannot truly understand whiteness if you do not go back to the origins of race itself, the construction the invention of race in the uh, United States, in particular in European countries in the 1600s. And race was intended to distinguish different groups. And within that racial categorization was whiteness as centralized. And this is where we uh, get a sense of whiteness being normalized. And it suggests that white people are the standard group by which all other groups are racialized and are seen as uh, uh, oftentimes uh, deficit and so uh, and are marginalized. So uh, as it relates to uh, teaching and intersexuality, well, if you are marginalizing groups based on racial categories that were created uh, and a part of that marginalization suggests that some groups are superior to other groups, then the, the standard curriculum, the approaches that you use, the pedagogies uh, that are used, the, the strategies for teaching that are used are favored to the majority group. It leaves out uh, intentionally or unintentionally the, the strengths of the groups that are marginalized. And so when we think about intersexuality, uh, we have to think about it in terms of we all have uh, different ways we identify ourselves. And even in those cases where we do not identify ourselves, society put identifications on us, put labels on us. So let's take intersexuality for an example. One could be Black, one could have a disability, one could be from a poor neighborhood or community, one could be from a low resource school, uh, one could have um, uh, family trauma, all of those categories, so to speak, or life conditions uh, impact one another. And this is how we see people being marginalized and approached as being of deficit. But it's, it's, not, it's not essence of the individual, it's the lack of resources. It's the, um, it's the way society is constructed that disadvantages people with disabilities. So if we think about um, how to approach intersexuality, it's about approaching resources, it's about approaching environments. It's, it's, it's saying that all individuals have strengths and we magnify those strengths, we embrace those strengths and we try to change the environment. So with that, you know, and, and Dr. Clark mentioned this too, of uh, teaching towards uh, students, uh, you know, a black teaching to black students and such in his peak courses. One thing that you know, uh, we have very, very few people with disabilities within our uh, higher ed field, as well as we have very few people 
uh, you know, especially black, uh, you know, faculty members within our field. Um, you know, we're talking a little bit about trying to have specific pedagogies to them. Um, and I guess like a part of me feels like, you know, that would be really great. And, but we, I don't feel like we have the, the capacity um, right now to do that effectively uh, in any manner. Um, you know, what can I do as a white faculty to try to, or can I overcome it? I don't know, come some of those things that I can do a good job of that as well as um, put, you know, because I think there's got to, but there's, we want to put people in the leadership positions within our field, but obviously that's a long, that's a long game. That's a 10, 15 year long game minimum. So how do we do that? Yeah, it's an important question. I think one, you can, uh, meaning you and anyone who has the desire to uh, incorporate social justice or justice principles within or teach can do so, but it's going to require training, which means uh, uh, in our preparation programs and even before we get there, it, it should have happened long before then. But uh, at minimal in our teacher preparation programs, uh, it should be reflected throughout the curriculum, not just an add on course in diversity or social justice. Your own self reflection of, of your experiences. Um, your understanding of these important concepts and terms, and then experiences that you intentionally engage in. In other words, um, do you intentionally interact with people from different cultures and different backgrounds, and intentionally learn about their histories and their customs and their traditions? Obviously, no one can learn about every culture or every group of people, but certainly those you're more likely to come in contact with, and then in those cases where you do experience people from different cultures and backgrounds that are not representative of your own, experiencing uh, uh, their cultures and their traditions uh, respectfully will enhance your ability to have an appreciation for not only your own culture, which I think is important, but the culture and understandings and traditions of others. Uh, one, one of the things that Dr. Clark mentioned, um, this moment right now, 2000, uh, 2020, reminds me of the 1960s now. So I'm an old guy. So I remember the 1960s, specifically 1968 and forward, where there was this massive movement in the United States, civil rights demonstrations, different laws were passed, the assassination of national prominent figures. And there was, a, 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 out of all of that trauma and distress, was a sense that America is going to change for the good forever. Didn't happen. There was a lot of movement, a lot of good things happened, but we're back to where we are in 2020. This moment feels much like that today. And so I think you're right in that what will be different uh, in this moment? So uh, I understand it's not my responsibility to, to, to educate my white colleagues, but for those who are reaching out and many are at this moment in time. I've decided this moment is too important not to engage in that that training and that reflective um, experience and, and help them to navigate this time because ultimately, it's, ultimately as our profession still is predominantly white, it's going to require the intentional efforts of white colleagues along with colleagues of color to make uh, sustainable, permanent change. To that, 
I love talking with Dr. Hodge because he knows this because we we have these um these iron sharpened iron sort of like conversations about about things like this. I, I think probably since I was probably since I stepped on the campus of Ohio State before I went to a class, we probably had a debate about something like this. Um, and I think what what shouldn't get lost in these conversations is is one. Um, and this this is from a conversation I had with with the another scholar who's a historian. And, and what he what he said was, um, what Dr. Pinot Joseph said was, you can have both. And so what he meant by that was, you can have you can have the the, the integrated inclusive space where you have access to the resources and um, all of the things that come with being in a mainstream or majority space, right? And you can also have you can also have your parallel institutions that are dedicated to the uplift of particular groups. And I think what I don't want us to get lost in this is the fact that that we need adapted PE programs at historically black colleges and universities. We need adapted PE programs at tribal colleges. We need adapted PE at anapeces. We need uh, adapted PE programs at Hispanic serving institutions. Um, and not just at the undergraduate level, we need doctoral research granting, research, doctoral granting research, um, research, uh, high research capacity programs at these institutions because they are firmly rooted or should be firmly rooted and deeply entrenched in the cultural norms and values and economies of the communities that they are supposed to be representing. And so our conversations about justice about social justice, again, just can't be about access to the mainstream or access to um, our colleagues who are already in positions of power and access. It has to be about the, the uplift and engagement with uh, institutions and programs whose primary sort of responsibility is to teach and emergence. Um, sort of back to your original question, um, Scott, um, one of the things that I do in my class, in my I'm the guy who teaches the adaptive PE class at UTSA, right? I teach the adaptive PE, adaptive physical activity course. And so one of the things that I try to do is, and for added context, we have a lot of veterans. Like I've had veterans in my class with PTSD. I've had veterans in my class with amputations. And so I want to highlight the fact that, you know, all disabilities aren't visible, as you know. And so we probably do have people in leadership positions with disabilities, and we may not even know it. Um, one of the things I like to do in my class is we have a, a practicum experience like most adapted PE classes. Um, and one of them is with a program called Kinetic Kids. And most of the children there have an intellectual disability or their children with autism, but it places them in a physical activity experience. The other experience is called STRAPS. Now, STRAPS has um, elite, elite, elite athletes with disabilities. And so what I try to do is provide that experience for my students so that they can see that these individuals, um, once they become adults and have like years and years of training, can actually become better athletes than you are with both your legs or both your arms or all of your limbs or whatever the case may be. And so what I try to do is make that shift 
in their mind so that they can see how um, excellence, both in terms of like intellect and ability, can also happen with those who have disabilities. And so that that's part of what I try to do to make the mentorship so that um, students with and without disabilities can see themselves in elite positions um, within programs and institutions. So another thing I want to add is that what I'm really, really trying to do, what I have, um, what I'm being conscious about is being able to prepare and send one of my students who may or may not be a veteran who has uh, a physical disability through the pipeline to get their degree um, in adapted PE. A lot of times they want to do you know, physical therapy or do the athletic training or even do um, personal training uh, with CrossFit gyms and things like that. But I am really trying to like mold I don't say more, but like influence, steer someone in the direction of going through the adaptive PE doctoral process so that we, we can have some representation in that regard. I'm, I'm going to jump on some of your points about the APE course, because I teach the APE course. You know, I only have one course at my university, uh, but I went through a master's and a doctoral program. And, um, you know, A, I think, and I was on a conversation, I think Dr. Hodges is leading a conversation with, uh, you know, I don't know, a, a group of, of peat faculty the other day. And one of the, the thoughts that came up, which I, I think is a, is a common thought, is that the APE, introductory APE course, sometimes is seen as our social justice diversity class for our peat programming. And yes, I've taken probably a little bit more social justice or, you know, critical theory kind of courses than, than the average person because I have an APE background, but I, I haven't really been specifically taught how to teach those concepts, even though I teach an APE course. Um, and you brought up the practicum component, and I think that practicum component is a really, what my experience is and some of the literature I've read is like, it's a very uh, unique and a very strong kind of foundational moment in a lot of Pete students um, kind of like framework of like of seeing disability uh, and but at the same time I don't always know if we do a very good job of it um, of, of how we teach to disability how we teach versus a, a deficit versus an empowering component um, I had Kathy McKay on a while ago and, and she actually does this Paralympic Day thing where it's really cool where she has um, athletes come in and kind of show and it's Paralympics actually has like a curriculum on how to empower disability and show disability sports and such. But at the same time, I also find that to be a little problematic in the way that we, in a way, we're, you know, athletes are great, but, um, you know, not everyone's going to be an athlete. And does that kind of devalue in a way? And I, and I know like we're, and this is what the podcast is supposed to be is going in little rabbit holes, but like, um, you know, are we somewhat devaluing the athlete that, you know, is not going to be that all-star athlete? And, you know, I, I don't know, like, I don't know always how to teach in those classes, like, because I think a lot of times those, those introductory courses, we're trying to teach attitude change a little bit, um, some immersion into the culture, but we're kind of putting them into these really clinical settings. Uh, we're, we're I don't know, like there, there's a huge hierarchy that we're putting our students in that oftentimes this is the first time they're being introduced to people with disabilities. And we're, we're setting the stage of like their value system um, in this practicum program. And I don't always know how to best do that. Uh, and if it's, do we need to always highlight 
athletes? Is that like, you know what I mean? Like, is that almost like teaching to that um, the majority kind of like a, a lens of it? I don't know. Thoughts? Yeah, I, I'm not certain that simply uh, highlighting um, athletes who are elite athletes uh, is not in some ways, at least to, at least minimally, sister to the deficit model thinking. It suggests that unless you're an elite athlete, uh, then you know you're less than. So uh, I, I think if we think in terms of intersexuality, uh, which is a is is a component of critical race theory, uh, it, you know the notion is that different does not mean deficit. And I, I think getting away from this notion that um, it difference implies deficit getting back to the notion of the environment and how it's structured, uh, how we define what deficit is or disability is, for, for an example, given that disability in a lot of ways is socially constructed as well. And uh, different societies define different things as disability. Uh, for, and, and, and for an example, dwarfism in the United States is defined uh, as a disability. But that has primarily to do with one's height. If you're not a certain height, some would say uh, as an adult, if you're not at least five feet uh, in height, then that's considered dwarfism. And the opposite to that is uh, giantism, which is seven and a half feet or taller. But we don't consider that a disability. Both are abnormal, so to speak, or outside the norms of average height, but one is considered a disability. The other one is looked upon as an advantage. So we define what disability is in a lot of ways. And as such, we construct our environments um, to either further disable people or accommodate their needs. And so I think when we're thinking about deficit, we need to give more thought to the environment and resources and access into the individual. I think for me, um, benefit that I have that, that may be different from some of our colleagues who are physical education teacher educators is that I basically teach, I don't want to say I teach all the PE classes, but I'm the PE guy, right? And so my students go from the adapted PE course, secondary methods with me, and then we get to have the conversation about like, what's your responsibility as a teacher, right? Because all my students think that I live in Texas, okay? My students wanna be football coaches, volleyball coaches, basketball coaches. And what I try to instill in them is that, you know, your job, and you've heard this before, your job is to teach physical education. That's what the bulk of your salary is. That you have a responsibility to teach those students who won't be athletes. So one of the activities that I have the students do um, is an interview of their cooperating teacher. And in that interview, I, I asked them to, to specifically ask the cooperating teacher, how do they provide um, an inclusive environment for students with disabilities? And more often than not, the cooperating teacher will say, oh, we just wait for the adaptive PE teacher who comes here once or twice a week to work with them. And that's how we have the conversation about when you become a teacher. This, is, this goes back to the example of like all your students won't be athletes. But it's not to say that the students with disabilities won't be athletes. 
It's just to say that there's a spectrum of abilities that you're going to be dealing with and you can't be so focused on the ones who are elite um, so much so that you're marginalizing the students that have other abilities. And so it's, I, I look at the conversation about disability, about deficit orientations as a theme that runs throughout the curriculum in the classes that I teach. Mm-hmm. And one of the conversations we used to have was at the very first day of class was what is a deficit orientation? A lot of my students are first generation college students. Um, they're, they're black and brown. I have some white students who are first generation college students. Interestingly, the vast majority of them, in my experience, are first generation college students, don't come from um, a lot of wealth. When we talk about what it means to have a deficit orientation and how sometimes at, at my university, they get framed through a deficit orientation. And so our conversations about what it means to be perceived from the deficit um, happens at, at the very first day of class oftentimes. And that, that becomes a theme that runs throughout um, our conversation. So that, that's kind of like how I address and- it. I don't know what your time frame is, but I'm really enjoying this conversation, but you let me know when we need to like, but like, and just another point before I move on, I want to talk about multiculturalism and and critical race pedagogy, but like as a, as a black, if you're a black person with a significant disability or a disability that's maybe um, uh, visible, you know, is that experience like, you know, I, I don't know, like the, the, you talk about that deficit model and people viewing you from a deficit model or feeling that you're viewed from a deficit model. I, I would, I would think that that would be a really difficult position to be in because likely you're, you're getting it from, I don't know, you know, um, even within like your, your black community probably um, of, of having a deficit. So it's almost like you're, I don't know. Um, I would think that that's a really difficult um, or, or could be uh, a difficult position to be in. Um, and I, I don't know many people. Well, actually, I used to work with kids, a lot of kids that were black and had disab- disabilities. But um, I don't know, like, just is that an area that that we are researching that we know much about, about their experiences and, and such within physical education? Well, we don't know much from the research uh, about students of color with disabilities and adaptive physical education. Uh, there is quite a bit of research in special education more generally, but not specific to adaptive physical education, what happens and how they experience uh, physical activity and physical education. So we don't know much from uh, empirically from the research. Um, but we do know, as it takes us back to intersectionality, that, you know, uh, having those multiple identities impact you in, in very different kinds of ways. Um, and so it does, in fact, um, increase the burden of, you know, uh, one, being accepted, uh, of accepting one's own identities, uh, and then, of course, navigating the educational experience. So it, it certainly compounds the difficulty of being successful within, in, within educational spaces. And how in like a physical education realm, uh, like how do we make sure that those kids, how do we reach out to those kids, um, you know, and make sure that they're, uh, they're successful. We're going to talk about multiculturalism in a little bit. And from my reading of some of uh, Dr. Clark's work is like, it's kind of that like colorblind kind of thought of like, we're all the same. 
Um, and I think that that's probably not the right way that we're going to reach those kids. Um, right. So how, how do we reach some of those kids? Yeah, well, we certainly, um, colorblind is the opposite of what we, we want to do. Uh, it suggests that you cannot actually see me or uh, respect or value my multiple identities in order to treat me a certain way. So colorblind, it, it, you know, um, has been criticized heavily um, and, and rightfully so, I would say. Um, embrace those students, to more specific to your question, embrace those students, uh, communicate with them, communicate with them both within the classroom, get to know their home environments, communicate with parents, with other persons who are part of the lives of those students, uh, find out what kinds of things they value that are valued within their homes and incorporate their histories and values and beliefs and perspectives into your, your program. An easy example for in physical education is obviously you can incorporate different dance uh, and customs within classrooms, but it should be an ongoing kind of thing, not just celebrate um, or point this out, but it's support you're incorporated and not necessarily uh, identifying uh, individual students, but the support of the curriculum that you expose uh, students to. So um, I, I, I would say, and this, I mean, this might be a, a revelation. I just had being in this conversation. And Dr. Hodge, you, you might agree. I think this is what I'm about to say, Dr. Hodge, I think is what you just said. So correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think that K through 12, black students who K through 12 who have physical disabilities are just largely invisible. I think they are largely invisible. And this, this, this is, is, I think, a valid critique of not just the field of the mainstream field of PE or APE, but I think even in the black scholarship, right, we don't see enough about um, and we don't we don't see enough about highlighting what it means to have disability outside of the context of of traditional mainstream special ed in the classroom. Like there hasn't been like a galvanizing force principle theory line of resource line of inquiry that has addressed that. And so we we oftentimes ignore um, our black students with with disabilities. It's, 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 man, I, I have to do like a self-check there myself, you know? Um, and it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly agree with that. I, I, I would, uh, that reminds me of in the traditional black church, there is call and response. In my early years, oftentimes you would have one of the deacons yell out, make it plain. And one of the things that Dr. Clark does is he makes it plain um, and brings it down to a level that is easy, easily digestible. So, yeah, we're in agreement 100%. Very cool. And, and thank you very much for, for all those thoughts. Um, I'm going to keep going on that. Like we, um, Dr. Hodge talked a little bit about that colorblindness. Uh, and, and so I think from re so from our reading, and I'll, I'll throw up some of the citations on, uh, on my blog post that goes to the podcast of Dr. Clark's work, but uh, you talk a little bit about critical race pedagogy as well. 
And I think you're kind of talking about it as an alternative to the multiculturalism uh, approach of teaching. Uh, and please let me know if, I, if I'm kind of miss uh, seeing this. But can you define critical race pedagogy, how it might be different than multiculturalism? Absolutely. Well, in general, critical race pedagogy focuses on the intersection of race, identity, and pedagogy, both in formalized education and beyond formalized education. Uh, whereas multicultural education generally speaks to uh, any form of education or teaching that incorporates histories and texts and values, beliefs, cultural perspectives of different groups of people. Um, the concern with both of those and more so with multicultural education is, and the criticism of, uh, of multi-education has been primarily that it's an attempt to do all things for all people. And of course, that quickly dilutes the whole intent and purpose of multicultural education. So uh, I tend to advocate more so for critical um, pedagogies, social justice pedagogies, uh, culturally relevant pedagogies, so specific tools uh, incorporated into physical education. Now, I must quickly say that these are tools, these are strategies, these are techniques uh, again, they are not answers to overcoming oppression. They are not the answers to ending racism. There are strategies that I think are necessary. The real work, the real work of overcoming and, and, and ending uh, racism and oppression, these tools won't cause that to happen um, unless we're on a 200-year plan for it to happen. Uh, I don't think most of us would like to have a 200-year plan to try to make it happen. So there has to be that, what we talked about earlier, training, intentional training, self-training in some cases, uh, being reflective of one's own experiences and intentionally seeking out experiences to change the mindset, to reposition our, our ideologies. Uh, some years ago, I spoke on, or I wrote a paper on ideological repositioning. I still think that's relevant. We need to change the way we think about people, the way we think about our society. Until that actually happens, we can use these various tools that are important to use, but that doesn't change the essence of the problem, which is systemic racism, institutional racism. Could you maybe talk about some of those specific strategies that we would find in a critical race pedagogy and how we might apply them to a PE class or in a PEAT program? Absolutely. Well, um, it goes back to the notion of incorporating um, different identities within uh, uh, one's class, uh, pedagogies that critically examine or you, or you think about accuracy of historical figures, for example. Um, that are portrayed in physical education. You think about, let me, give you, let me give you an example of where it was absent as contrast to what it should have looked like. I attended a uh, National uh, Academy of Kinesiology meeting some years ago, and the presenter was talking about the importance of physical activity. And she must have gone through 40 or 50 slides of people engaged in different kinds of physical activity, families, individuals, bicycling, et cetera, et cetera. And in all of the photos that she showed, they were representative of white people. 
none of the photos represented people of color or diversity. Uh, and so if we're thinking about being inclusive and mindful of cultures, then I would have wanted to see a variety of different groups of people being physically active, engaged in physical activity. So that's 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 what I think about when we're thinking about critical race pedagogy, highlighting, uh, intentionally bringing into play uh, uh, different groups of people from different races and different identities into the pedagogy and making that a constant part of what it is you do in your classrooms. For me, what I, what I argue in the paper is that I'm an ethnographer by by training, and so um, that's just to provide context for what I'm about to say. And so, um, I think the critical rest, the, the critical race pedagogy is is global, um, in the sense that it has to do with more than just what's happening in the classroom or in the PEAT program. Um, it has to do with the institution that that people are being taught and trained in. It has to do with um, the history of that institution. It has to deal with all of like all of the things that that make what happened in a classroom possible um, in addition to what's happening in the classroom. And I think there's value in, so the, the rapper Killer Mike talks about his education in high school um, in Atlanta. And you have a Booker T. Washington High School, and you have a Benjamin Mays High School. And, and the culture of the high school is rooted in the racial history of the people who attend the school. And it's through and through, um, from the administration to the PTA to uh, the way the culture of the sports and the bands manifest and present themselves, like all of that. And so I think, for me, a critical race pedagogy um, is, is, is definitely about what happens in the classroom, but also taking into account that um, what students see in the hallway matters. The name of the school matters. Who's in charge of the school? Who has power in the school? All of those things matter in addition to teaching students fitness and physical activity and the X's and O's of sport. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. I recall many years ago when I was starting out as a uh, new faculty here at Ohio State, I was asked to serve on a panel to talk about uh, diversity, basically. And one of the students, it was a graduate class, and one of the students asked, well, what would diversity, valuing of diversity look like in a school? And I went on to say some very superficial kinds of things like, well, you would walk into the school and you see different flags from different countries. Um, the curriculum would have um, uh, representation from different groups and so forth and so on. And one of the other panelists uh, quickly helped me realize the limitations of what I was saying. Because critical race pedagogy, as Dr. Clark was suggesting, is about the negotiation of power, it's about critique of self and reflection of self, it's about overcoming or countering hegemonic thinking. What the panelists, other panelists said was, if you truly want to see the valuing of diversity in the school, then you need to know who are the administrators. Are the administrators diverse? 
there a diversity of administrators, people in positions of power? Is there a diverse teaching workforce there? Is there a diverse coaching staff there? Are all the coaches white or all the teachers or predominantly all of the teachers white or all the decision makers white? So what I'm saying here is that uh, as Dr. Clark was suggesting, it embraces not only what you teach in your classes, but the entirety of the environment of the school itself and who are in positions to make decisions and influence decisions. Absolutely. Uh, a little bit about my experience, because I feel like, so I, I think I'm unique uh, as a white person, at least especially in like Pete, is that I grew up in Detroit and right outside of the Detroit area. And so I like went in and out of like these, uh, like I didn't have a white teacher till I was in fourth grade. And like, but then I moved out to the suburbs and I didn't have a teacher of color uh, until I was back in a, uh, an urban setting. So it was like this, and I feel like it actually impacted me quite a bit um, that, and I didn't even realize those things until I talked to other people. And I realized that nobody, like nobody that looked like me at a, in a PEAT program um, had those experiences. So, and I think those, those, I don't know, those didn't impact me quite a bit. So I think those things are, you know, relevant to everybody. Um, I do wonder too, though, like, so we call it critical race pedagogy. And to me, it sounds like we're questioning power and such like that. Um, can that be applied to disability, which is not race, obviously, is just as easily. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because disability also, uh, so if we're thinking about the negotiation of power, then uh, we know that persons with disability, generally speaking, are not in positions of power. And oftentimes decisions that are made are made by those without disability for people with disability. In fact, their entire ecosystem oftentimes are people who may not have a disability making decisions for them. And so empowering people with disabilities uh, uh, in our research, for example, if, 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 if you conduct a study uh, on persons with disabilities and not including people with disabilities in the research enterprise, uh, that's limiting, I would say. If you conduct a research study in inner city school and not have people of color as part of your research team and group, that's limiting. So. Uh, I, I would say absolutely critical race pedagogy is relevant within um, disability studies and, and uh, adaptive physical education. So um, I'm going to go back to talking a little bit about uh, when we talked a little bit about whiteness uh, and within our physical education programs. I think it's very pervasive, especially in the AP world. Um, and so we talked a little bit about some of the, you know, the problem of whiteness. Now, I, I think I mentioned this before, but how do we like, and, and maybe this is something that uh, we just need to continue to question, but how do we address those problems uh, within our field and then also within classrooms? Like, how do we, uh, you know, that, that to me, like, I don't, the thing that I sometimes hear is I, it's all, it's very meta to me. Uh, like, you know, like, how, how do we do day-to-day -day tasks to try to actually overcome these issues? I don't know that, well, first, you know, there has to be a reckoning and recognition of that whiteness has been normalized. So that is fundamental to beginning to 
uh, value and appreciate others. And then you learn from the values, the intellect, the experiences of others and bring those into the classroom. So it's not that, I think part of my um, struggle has been, particularly in this moment in history with movements and protests and changing, and taking statues down and all the kinds of things that are happening right now, is there seems to be a rush to changing what we do rather than changing who we are. Yeah. And I think if we just only focus on changing what we do, that's going to be a moment in history. Now, whether that lasts for five years, 10 years, or whatever the case may be, but at some point we will return to where we are if we don't change who we are. So I understand the question and I appreciate the question, but I think until we get to a point where we change who we are, then changing what we do is going to be of little value um, in the long term. And I, I think for me, um, I go back to what I found in my, in my dissertation study and from a colleague of ours who was a mentor of mine, um, Dr. Carlos Cervantes. And in our conversations, and he's at Houston Tilson University, um, Carlos is, is Colombian, Dr. Hodge? Yes, he's Colombian. Carlos is Colombian, but he teaches at a historically black college with, uh, with a good percentage of students who are, who are brown students. Um, so both black and brown students there. And he is, he is preparing those students to go back into their own communities. He, and, and that's, in, in, in our conversations about how he is teaching them and why he is teaching them, and so that they can go back to their own community and do this uplift work. And so I think more of that needs, needs to be happening in our teaching from K through 12 all the way from to the PhD program. And I think I've experienced that, right? Um, I've been handed off at every, every, every step of the way. And then I was, I wasn't, I didn't choose, like, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't choose to go to A&T. My mother told me to go there. I didn't choose to go to Ohio State. Dr. Webb told me to go there. I didn't choose to go to Texas. Dr. Hodge told me to go there. I didn't choose to go to UTSA. Dr. Harrison told me to go to UTSA. Right. And so in some ways, these things were very intentional in the ways that they were done. Um, and so we can't, we can't be having students go to the tier one research one school and say, well, you know, I'm only preparing you to go to R1 school, right? We got to be intentional about like, I'm preparing you to go teach at that HSI or that HBCU or that black serving institution, that tribal school to do the work of the uplift. And yes, there's need for research and grants and money and all of that stuff. But we, we figure that out through, through strategic partnerships. Um, and this kind of goes back to my belief that we can't, part of this work has to be decentering the whiteness. It has to be decentering like, you know, going to the PWI and learning how to navigate that system. A lot of what we do has to be about going back to your own community 
and maintaining and sustaining your own system so that your communities and your programs can thrive much in the same ways we see um, white institutions and white classrooms and, and white services for students with disabilities. Yeah, I think Dr. Clark is right. We've had this conversation before, I recall, in fact, here in my office, where my position was uh, then and still is that we need uh, both. And I, I think he's suggesting that we need persons at these predominant white institutions who are uh, trying to pull um, students of color into these programs and where they can have these experiences. But we also need uh, competent and highly trained and, and uh, prepared people at historically black colleges and universities, Hispanic serving tribal institutions as well. So I, I don't, it, it certainly for me is not a either or, it's, it's and, but um, in terms of uh, making this, this world a more just, a more just world. And I think that's probably is absolutely uh, applicable to just the public schools as well, that we yeah. want them in, in a variety of settings uh, uh, because they're often, yeah, not represented. Um, yeah, this is a, a really good conversation. I, a few, like I have like kind of two last questions. One is, so like kind of just wrapping up our conversation, like another issue though is like we're talking about elevating, you know, people uh, of color in the, the leadership positions trying to do this and even like having both of you on right now like it's um you know something i've heard before is like we are we kind of tax or overburden our uh our you know leaders or, or um, emerging leaders of color or uh, marginalized groups um and and you know like and there might be some burnout because of that because you know i'm asking you to be on a podcast about race and you know i'm maybe i'm not the only one that's asking you to do stuff like that how do we like avoid that overburden like in our institutions like i'm i'm asking more of you because you're a, a person of color how do i avoid that and or i i don't know well from my perspective is this there there is the short-term strategy and long-term strategy the long-term strategy is to is to invite and encourage more people like uh, Dr. Langston Clark to come into our programs and uh, go through those experiences and then go out and publish and, and be an advocate and a voice and an agent change. Uh, that's the long term. So I've been in, I've been at that work for at least 25 years now trying to produce a diversity of scholars and not not only black and Hispanic or Latinx, uh, but certainly women and, and uh, as well as uh, white women and, and white males as well to go out and be advocates and, and change agents. Uh, that's the long term because obviously for, for obvious reasons. A uh, short term is the immediate need to, uh, uh, and I will reemphasize the immediate need to do some self-training, self-reflection. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, several of my colleagues and I have decided to do a, a book club for this summer to read the uh, one of the works that uh, is popular right now. It's called White Fragility. And uh, we're going to meet uh, over lunch and talk about that book and um, the white experience. Uh, most of these colleagues are white uh, colleagues. And so that's to impact them hopefully right away. So there, I think there needs to be a combination of both short-term and long-term strategies. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut him off, but I just had 
hope they're paying for your lunch. You know what I mean? Like, because that's work. That's <laughs> it is <laughs> labor. Um, yeah, but if you think about it in terms of, let's say now these colleagues become advocates and change agents, and they and they use the power that they have of voting for uh, admitting certain students into their programs, then that's the repayment for me, the fact that they will have a more diverse cohort of people in their programs. But I think Dr. Clark makes a great point. Like, I mean, why is that your job? Um, and like, you know, and then how do you avoid like, you know, because like, I'm sure like compared to me, like, I'm sure that you get asked to do quadruple the amount of work that has to do with these types of issues. You know, like I, I teach an AP course. So sometimes people see me as a you know, diversity kind of advocate, but I'm sure you're being asked a lot more. So how do you, you know, and, and maybe you, you have the capacity to do some of that, that some of our colleagues, you know, like how do we not overburden? Well, um, I think um, we are overburdened. So the question becomes, uh, I, I, I'm not sure that you cannot, that you will not overburden. The question becomes the accepting of that burden or not accepting of that burden. I think people have the right to choose to accept the burden or choose not to. I accept it uh, for multiple reasons, but two I will mention. One is the fact that my attempt is to be um, an agent of change uh, using that long-term strategy that I just mentioned. And two, the joy and the pleasure and the pride I have when you do have a Langston Clark or a uh, uh, Carlos Cervantes or a Christian Martinez, uh, and the list goes on, these individuals go out and are impactful in their programs. So whether they are engaged in scholarship or not, but they're impactful in terms of students that they, front, they stand in front of in their classes. So uh, yes, there's a burden. Uh, but I've made a conscious and intentional decision to carry that burden as far as I can take it. And then there will be others who will come along and, and do some heavy lifting as well. Yeah, I, I, I agree um, with Dr. Hines. Mostly, I just think we should get paid for it. Like, to me, it's more than just, you know, the, the, the changing of allies who will use their power as a position to do yada, yada, yada. Like, we got asked uh, before COVID hit, we were in a meeting about establishing a minority males program. And, you know, the conversation with, with the administrator was, is that we want people to do this out of the kindness of their heart who just aren't doing it for the money. And, you know, because they, the program started, they did a program before, but the money ran out. And so when the money stopped, people stopped teaching it. Mm. Like, I'm already doing the work, right? And so you're asking me to do extra work on top of the extra work I'm doing, but then not, not paying me for that. Like that, that's another level of the inequities. And so like, even if we have an APE or in higher education administrators and we look at their salaries and we say, you're making just as much as the other person, all that other work that they're doing still means that they're working more than the other person that doesn't have to do the uplift labor. Right. And so all that does is just, you know, it just, it's just the, the another cycle of the inequities in terms of, of the work and the labor that we do. But at the same time, it's just the nature of the work. 
right? I'm not going to go work at UTSA or anywhere else and not also do the mentoring work. It's just not, it's not going to happen. It's, and I think most black scholars, most um, Latinx scholars, most brown scholars, most um, indigenous scholars or indigenous um, teacher educators, or what have you, and even with our Asian faculty, like you see the mentoring that they do, you know, like it's, it, that's the extra labor and extra work that we just, I think, we accept. And we know that that's just, that's just par for the course. Um, but I think it needs to be recognized that, that that needs to come with some monetary compensation. Yeah, we're in full agreement uh, on that point. Um, yeah, no question about it. Yeah, no, it's uh, good points. All right, last kind of uh, point that I'm, I'm going to uh, make is, uh, or question. So we had this conversation. I, I really appreciate this conversation. This was uh, very reflective for me. But what I want to avoid, uh, and I think Dr. Hodge mentioned this a little bit, you know, of making changes to what we do versus who we are a little bit. But like, how do I make this or how do we make this? Um, not just uh, there's a Black Lives uh, Matters movement right now happening. And we're going to have this conversation right now. And in 10 years, we're going to have exactly the same conversation. Um, how do we progress this? How do we make this not just a reactive conversation? Well, I think it's an excellent and important question. I think there are, uh, I mentioned the 1968 and through the 1970s in terms of protests, civil rights movements and so forth. And that this feels much like that time. But I think there are three important differences that gives me greater hope than um, what uh, it turned out to be. One is um, the organized protests are much more diverse. Uh, uh, more young people are protesting, young adults are protesting from all different ethnic, racial, and social backgrounds. So there's more diversity. Two, this today is the great, there is the greatest number of black people in position of power to affect change and, uh, than there has been at any time in America's history. There are black police chiefs, there are black judges, there are black mayors, and so and the list goes on in terms of black people in positions of power. That was far less so the case in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, third, there is a greater number of white people in positions of power and authority who are advocating for such change. And so you are seeing changes happening that are both symbolic but also real. Uh, we see the, the banning of the Confederate flag, NASCAR, for example. Now, of course, we're going to know there, there will always be reactions to uh, cultural changes, and we just saw that with the noose and the black drivers. Um, uh, regarding the black drought over the weekend, uh, but we see statues coming down of Confederate generals and so forth. So uh, I think those three pillars of today's movement uh, gives me greater confidence that there might be permanent change. My, my biggest concern, however, is that these changes will happen and we don't do that heavy lifting that I talked about before, the self-training, reflective training and engaging intentionally in diverse experiences so you get to know and value and appreciate 
uh, the cultures of others, and you come to know that your culture is not uh, centric to all of creation. I think unless that happens on a wide scale, then uh, even with the promising components I just mentioned, we may end up back where we are. I would say that in case that doesn't happen, which I, I'm, I don't have, I don't have a tremendous amount of faith that there's going to be substantial change in terms of how how people think. Um, Black Lives Matter. Listen, Black culture is the predominant like cool culture. Black American culture is the predominant cool culture that gets um, sold globally. And my concern is is that Black Lives Matter is just has just now become a part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's for sale now, right? June third, Juneteenth is now for sale. I I believe that the best way to ensure that situations um, like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor uh, are minimized, or and even systemic um, racism or inequities are minimized moving forward, is the um, uplift and economic stabilizing of, of black institutions, of brown institutions, of indigenous institutions, of Asian institutions, what have you. It, it must, we must have strong institutions within our communities to serve as buffers for what potentially may, may, may come later. And I, I think that's the best way to minimize um, or, or to make certain or to help make certain that we're not having the same conversation 10 years from now, or if we're having the same conversation 10 years from now, that we are more, those of us who are marginalized, that we are more empowered to, um, to, to deal with these situations when they occur. Well said. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I, uh, one one thought on that. I, whenever I start seeing things like Amazon and Netflix like supporting a movement, it makes me feel a little queasy. Like I'm, I always go, uh, I don't know. Like, aren't you the problem? Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> anyways, I really appreciate both you coming on and having this honest and thoughtful conversation. Uh, you know, I think we applied it definitely at that meta area and and I but I think it's very applicable to PE and AP and I think we need to be more reflective on a, on a daily basis and uh, once again I really appreciate you all taking the time and coming over and uh, talking thank you very much I appreciate it